Paul. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Press, and uh, it's a joy, and uh, it's good to be here to worship with you all. We're continuing along in our study of the book of Nehemiah, Rebuild and Restore, and the scripture passage for today comes from Nehemiah chapter 5. I'll be reading from verse 1 to verse 13, so go ahead and open up to that chapter. I'll look up on the screen and let me read the Word of God for us here today. I pray that your hearts will be we're open to hearing what God has to say to us. But starting with verse 1 in Nehemiah 5. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers, for there are those who said, With our sons and our daughters we are many. So let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. There are also those who said, We are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there are those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers. Our children are as their children. Yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved. But it is not in our power to help it. For other men have our fields and our vineyards. I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself, and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. I said to them, You are exacting interest from each each from his brother, and I held a great assembly against them, and said to them, We, as far as we are able, have brought back our Jewish brothers and have been, who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. They were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, The thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God, to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain, Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, and their houses and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Then they said, We will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, So may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise. So may he be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. And this is God's word for us today. Nehemiah has been an interesting study because you have a a picture of what lessons on a leadership may look like, but you also have a picture of how does a people group move forward and pursue this vision so that they could be restored and healed and, in some sense, um, reconciled and resting in the place that they were created to be. So you have an interesting perspective on the book of Nehemiah from both the community but also as leaders. And today, we're going to look at Nehemiah, and we exactly have those two points that we see in the passage. There's lessons on leadership, but there's also lessons about what it means to be a people of God. Because one of the lessons that you'll learn about leadership is that leadership on some level is essentially fixing problems and finding solutions. In fact, you can make the argument that the greatest skill set that any leader needs is the ability to keep unity, to fix problems, and to find a solution. And that's what we've seen Nehemiah do even up until the passage that I've just read. So in Nehemiah chapter 1, he had a personal problem because he felt guilty for his own people who were suffering, and he had to figure out, am I going to take on this big project? In Nehemiah 2, he had a political problem, because he had to convince the king, 
give me the resources and permission to go build the wall that you just said we can't even build. And then in chapter 3, he had an organizational problem because how do you mobilize thousands of people and try to utilize all the resources and materials to build this wall that was massive? And then last week, we considered chapter 4 where we saw that there's a physical problem in the sense that they were being attacked from jealous and envious nations that were outside of their community. And then in chapter 5, there's another problem that we're going to consider, and it's an internal problem. There's a problem that is economic and social in nature. There's a problem of oppression. There's a problem of injustice. There's a problem of people taking advantage of one another. They often say in a church, the greatest threat and the greatest problem that could divide the church comes not from the outside, but it comes from the inside. And Nehemiah shows us that he moves from being a building contractor into an effective social worker. And when we look at how he deals with the internal problems of the church, you and I could be able to learn how do we actually deal with internal problems as a church, whether you're a member or a leader. And I think that we look at Nehemiah, he's swift, he's compassionate, he's logical, he's a social worker, and we'll learn three things about his solution and how he deals with internal problems. And I like to think about the verses in this way. One, we'll look at the suffering of the people. Secondly, we'll look at the sin of the people. Thirdly, we'll look at the solution for the people. Or if you want to take it in terms of an emotional perspective, you could say, well, point one, we're going to look at the outcry of the people. You know, they, have to, they, they cry out because of their pain. Secondly, we're going to look at the greed of the oppressors. And then thirdly, we'll look at Nehemiah's encouragement to fear God. So let's look at this. So point one, the outcry of the people, the suffering of his people, which is basically described to us in verses one to five, but I'm just going to read verse one. This is what it says, what we read right there. There arose a great outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. Now, that word outcry has a sense of being in distress, lament, it's pain, it's agony, a weeping and wailing. It's talking about you're being hurt. So when it says outcry, what it's basically telling us is a red fire signal that's telling you we're in an emergency and we need some help here. It's something like a red light that say, okay, we got a big problem. And the verses tell us what the problem is. If you don't realize this, in order for these people to build a wall, it's a 24-7 job. So they had to leave the regular jobs, which means that there was no food to eat. So they were really financially strapped, and they literally had no food on the table. It's probably why in verse 1, it said also their wives were also complaining about this because they tend to be the ones in that culture that made the dinner and made the food for the people. But you had a problem in which there's no food. And then verse 3 says it's worse because there's a famine. There's not a lot of grain to begin with. And then what's worse is that the problem is that their very own brothers, the Jewish brethren, these people in their covenant community, were basically price gouging. Merchants were raising prices of the grain. And then on top of that, then you have 
increased taxes because taxes was just of a pain in the neck back then as it was today. And the Persian kingdom were raising taxes so that all the money was flowing out from their temple and going into the Persian kingdom and empire. So they're financially strapped from every facet of their situation. So what would you do if you're in their situation? You'd probably mortgage the house and get a home equity line, get a HELOC. And that's basically what they did. They mortgaged their fields. They mortgaged their vineyards. They did all of this to buy food. But there was a richer part of their community. These guys were oppressing them, were being greedy and selfish. They took all their materials, took all their mortgage, took all their fields and vineyards, and they also took their children because the families were so desperate, they sold off their children to be slaves or indentured servants so they could get paid. And then what made it all worse was that the wealthier people were charging really high interest rates to the people in their church family that was in the word of God expressly condemned and prohibited in Leviticus 25. That's the problem. That's their suffering. People were starving, they're hurting, they're scared, they're angry. I mean, what would you do if you were in this situation and you had no other recourse? I think you would do what they probably did in verse 1. You would just simply cry out in pain and agony. You'd cry out. Now, there's a lesson for us to learn about this that I pray that could give us a little bit of comfort the ability for us to be able to cry and to lament and to weep and to be frustrated and to feel every emotion that we feel in the moments that are so hard. The reason it's so important to know that we could cry out to God is because whenever you read the Bible, God always responds to the cry of his people. Now, he may not fix your problem the way that you want. He may want you to continue to persevere and suffer and to learn lessons of what it means to persevere. But the Bible always says, God hears you. He responds to you. He cares for you. His presence is near you. And it's so important for us to understand because if we could learn to find comfort by crying out in the moments of our deep difficulty, we also can have a sense of hope, peace, and security, and we can get through. Aaron Cerrone wrote this article in uh, CCF, and he wrote about the ability for God's people to cry out, and he said, back in 2020 in the Grammys, the artist Demi Lovato took the stage for the first time in over 18 months, and she performed her song, Anyone. It was an emotional and urgent cry from the heart. She wrote it a few hours before she was hospitalized for a drug overdose, and after she sang this song, they were saying that in the crowd, everyone was stunned and everyone is crying and in tears because they could resonate with their desire to cry out in pain. These are a couple of verses from the song just to give you a sense of what she's saying. She said, I try to talk to my piano. I try to talk to my guitar, talk to my imagination, confided in alcohol. I tried and tried and tried some more, told secrets till my voice was sore, tired of empty conversation because no one hears me anymore. Then she says later on, anyone please send me anyone. Lord, is there anyone? I need someone. Anyone, please send me anyone, Lord. Is there anyone? Because I need someone. Now, you can resonate with this desire just to be heard and felt. And whether seated in the audience or you're watching there from home, we all share with her this deepest longing to know, is anyone out there listening and caring or near to us? Because most of us know what it feels like to be alone and invisible and weak don't we? You know what that feels like. We know that confiding in others, sometimes journaling, our intimate thoughts and wounds can be quite healing and putting our fears and doubts and heartache 
into a song can be powerfully therapeutic. When we give personal voice to our emotions, we label them, we articulate them, we organize them, it helps us to make sense of this hurt, and it brings a level of healing. Speaking in them out loud could even be more so. But if we're honest, friends, we also share Lovato's doubts about the results of just being heard, because ultimately self-expression is empty, and it brings us up short of the heartache that doesn't matter to anyone unless we're hearing or sharing to someone who's important. We have to share not just to anyone, but we've got to share to someone who's bigger, more powerful than our troubles, more powerful than us. See, the challenge here with Lovato's song is that it doesn't go far enough. We don't just need warm bodies and anyone to listen to. We need a God to send us someone who intimately knows us, listens to us, comforts us, and loves us. The irony is that in this song, she had millions of people listening to her cry. But I wonder if she really got healed and harmonized and had hope through this. She had millions of people because you know what it shows us? It doesn't matter about the number of people that you cry out to. It matters actually who you cry out to. If you get into a car accident and you're on your life and death situation and you're crying out to a thousand people, but the thousand people are basically a bunch of accountants, you may be in dire straits. But if you get into a car accident and you're in a life, death, and situa- life and death situation and you're only crying out to that one person, but that one person is a medical doctor, then actually you're in much better hands. It matters not just how many people you cry out to, but actually who you cry out to. And that's where we have to see that every time the people in verse 1 cry out, God always answers our cries, our pain. And even though he won't fix your problem right away in the way that you want, he will be near. He'll comfort you. He'll be secure with you. You can know that he's bigger than you and more powerful than you and smarter than you. And he's always shown this in his son, Jesus Christ. There was this Christian artist, or rather author, Jennifer Rothschild. She just wrote really briefly in a blog that research shows that women cry anywhere between 30 and 64 times a year. That means most of us girls shed tears at least twice a month, and some of us out there cry about every five days. She says some people, they cry like tricklers, just barely, barely letting a tear drop. And other people are the Niagara Falls. Now, you just let it out and you languish and you let your tears out. Either way, the Bible tells us that God hears and responds and he sees every tear. Even the book of Psalms says he captures every tear in the bottle because he cares about what you're emotional about. He cares, he notices, he moves. Well, don't take my word for it. Let's look to the word of God really briefly. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, it said, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmaster. In 2 Kings 20, verses 1 to 5, basically, uh, Hezekiah wept bitterly because he was so sick, and it says that God saw the tears of Hezekiah and heard his prayer. And then when it's all said and done in Revelation 21, this is what we see in verse 4. For those who overcome, we will wipe away, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. That is our hope. We may have to wait a little bit. We may have to suffer. But he says, I'm going to give you the grace to get through. And do you know why, before we go to our second point, why God will always answer our prayers, answer our outcries? It's because he's done it over and over again. We saw it in Israelites. We saw it here in Nehemiah 5. We'll see it in 2 Kings. We see it eventually in Revelations 21. Every time somebody cries out who is God's covenant people, God hears their cries and answers it. 
cries out in Genesis, cries out in Exodus, cries out in 2 Kings, cries out in the Old Testament prophets. Every time God responds and hears the cries, and you know why he's able to do this, and we could bank on it even for you and I here today, that if we cry out, he'll answer this, because there's one cry that God didn't answer. There's a man named Jesus on the cross, and he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Even before that, he cries out in the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup away from me. Do you know what God did? Yeah, he was there, he heard, but in some sense, he turned away a bit because he says, I'm going to pour my wrath upon you to save a people for myself. And because God, in some level, didn't answer the cry of Jesus, that is exactly why, in Christ Jesus, he will answer your cry and mine. That's what it tells us about getting through to have hopes. Are you good at crying out to God and the only one? Because a lot of us, before we move on, are good at crying out, but the problem is that we cry out to 100 people horizontally. You tell everyone. It's almost like borderline gossip, but you're always calling the wrong person. You're telling the 100 accountants, but you're not going to the medical doctor. You got to tell the one who's bigger and stronger than you. Danley Votto had millions of people she's crying out to. May bring in a lot of money, but it's not going to bring her hope and security and safety because you have to cry out to the one who sent his son Jesus for us. But this brings us to our second point. They were crying out because there's a problem here. There's a sin of the people, and that sin is basically greed. Very quickly, if you look at verse 7, not the whole verse, but it says there, Nehemiah is angry. You're exacting interest each from his brother. Basically, high interest rates. They took their neighbor's vineyards. They took their fields, took their resources, even took their children. Sometimes they sold their children to a pagan army or a pagan nation, and then that family had to go to the pagan nation and buy the child from the pagan nation. And they did that because the price was probably higher. They wanted more and more, and they were even able to take advantage and impress people in their own church. They were greedy. Remember when I once said, Rockefeller, back in the day, how much money is enough? And his answer was, just a little bit more. And I wonder if that's our hard posture. About 30 years ago in Harper's Magazine, they asked seven ad agencies to create ads for the seven deadly sins. And the ad for greed featured a picture of Santa Claus with the headline, the world's foremost authority speaks out on the subject of greed. And the letters piled in front of them all began, Dear Santa, I want. And then the magazine went on. Santa looks up and comments, do you remember all of the things you told me when you wanted as a child? Well, now as an adult, your list may have changed, but I wonder if it's gotten any shorter. More and more is what we want. See, friends, as amazing as it may seem, one thing to know about greed is that the Bible talks more about money and the dangers of greed than any other sin in the Bible. Did you know that? More explicitly, he talks about greed more than any other sin. The hypocritical Pharisees were called lovers of money. John the Baptist warned people against discontent with their income. Jesus warned people to watch out and be on guard against greed and against worrying about money and against frantic pursuits of money, against finding your worth and identity and your economic status. Jesus said that if money, comfort, and reputation are too important to you, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. And friends, it's not just about your purchasing power. You could be greedy about a lot of material possessions. I remember at five years old when I was living in the state of Louisiana, uh, my favorite toy were Hot Wheels cars. And my favorite Hot Wheel car was this black Porsche with this little Fred 
flames. I thought it was cool. I felt like I was the coolest kid at school, and I felt like this is an awesome car. But every time it got a little scratch, every time it got a little ding in the side of it because I played with it and I rolled it across the floor of the kitchen floor, I'd ask, Mom, can I get another Porsche with red flames on the side? And she'd always buy it for me. And that one would get scratched up. Mom, can I get another Porsche with the red flames on the side? And she would buy it for me. Maybe my mom actually, she just spoiled me. Maybe it's sort of her fault, but like, the point is really this. And when it was all, edit, all said and done, I remember distinctly, I lined them all up. I had five Porsche, black Porsche hot wheel cars with red flames on the side, five of them. Greed. <laughs> I would have went 10 if I could. That's how dangerous greed is. See, this is the thing, friends. Let's look at greed a little bit. Greed is a specific but different from coveting. Coveting in the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, is actually a really big, it encompasses everything. Coveting is wanting something good, but wanting it more than Jesus. You want it too much. The word literally coveting means an over-desire. That's why if you covet a man's life, you murder. You covet a man's reputation, you lie. You covet someone's spouse, then you commit adultery. That's what coveting does. But greed is a specific species or expression of coveting. Greed is a coveting specifically for stuff, for money. The old school word for greed is avarice, which comes from the Latin word craving. Like the sin of lust, greed craves something that isn't necessarily wrong, but it craves it excessively and too much. It's a form of idolatry. If you look at Colossians 3.5, it says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. And then in Luke chapter 12, 15, Jesus said, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You see, this is why, if you get a little bit deeper, this is why for Jesus, it's not just the love of money that is greed. It's also the anxiety of money that also is greed. Did you ever think about it that way? Some people think oh, only rich people can be greedy. No, I just showed you a kid with five Hot Wheels cars could be just as greedy as anyone else. You could love too, money too much and be greedy. You could have all the stuff and live in the best neighborhoods and be greedy. But you could also be very poor and be anxious about money and you're just as greedy. Because whether you love money too much or stress out about money too much, both are really hard expressions to say you trust money too much. You place too much hope in your money possessions for security, for your identity, for a sense of purpose in life. That's why for Jesus, it's not just the love of money, but the anxiety about it. The reason our emotions are controlled by money is because one's life can consist in the abundance of possession. We think our identity can be based on money. If we lose it, we think we lose our sense of self. That's why both rich and poor people can be equally greedy. It's a condition of the heart that trusts in possessions and money too much. You think you'll lose your life if you have a lot of stuff and lose your stuff. You think you'll gain a life if you hope to hit the lottery and be successful and have a lot of stuff. Either way, you're trusting in your greed and your money and possessions far more than you trust in Jesus. And Jesus is the only one who can satisfy your heart in the way that money possessions can't do. Instead of receiving physical things that's from God to be enjoyed and to be shared through people, we worship these things we work extra hours, we sacrifice needlessly, perhaps we're even given to theft. Why do these things because, become these things for us? Because we believe 
that greed and craving these things will bring us everlasting comfort and joy. But it can't satisfy. Bruce Walkie once said, money is really good. By the way, Christianity loves money. It's good. The Bible affirms money. Proverbs affirms money. But it's a distant second to godliness. And that's something that these people didn't realize. They loved money so much, they took their sons and daughters. They had higher interest rates. They took their ability to make food. Their brethren were really suffering, but they loved money more. So they thought money could give them something that only Jesus can, but you can't. The Old Testament scholar once said this about money. He says, money could put food on the table, but it can't bring you a loving family around it. Money could buy you a really nice house, but money can never make it a home. Money could give you a necklace around a woman's neck, but it can never give you the love that her heart may crave. Only Jesus can do that. A 19th century author once wrote about his successful life and the large amount of money that he was able to amass. His last penned words on his deathbed and his own epitaph said this, I have coveted everything. I have coveted everything. I have taken pleasure in nothing. That's a sad existence on his epitaph. And do you know why for us how we could be generous and not covet? It's not to give your money away. You think, oh, if I'm, if I'm greedy, I'm going to give everything away. No, if remember, poor people can be just as greedy. The key is this, is to look at Jesus Christ and who you're rich. In 2 Corinthians 8, I'll give you a quick summary. Paul goes over to the church at Corinth and says, I'm here to collect the tithes that you promised to give to the poor church in Macedonia. And he, they weren't paying up, and Paul doesn't do this. He doesn't guilt trip the church and say, hey, I'm the apostle. You better listen to me, otherwise you're going to go to hell. He doesn't pull an authority figure. He doesn't say, look at me. I wrote, the, I wrote the New Testament. I'm here to collect. You better listen to me. You know what he says? He says, I know that you're struggling, but this church over there is struggling more. They need your help. You better give up your money. Do you know why? Because in chapter 8, verse 9, he says, do you not know that you're rich in Jesus Christ? That's what he says. To make you more generous, you don't need behavior modification. You need internal heart transformation. Do you not know that you're rich in Jesus Christ, that you have everything that you need by faith in him that will make you compassionate and generous and loving to your neighbor? Well, that leads us into our second point. This is his solution. First of all, you have to recognize that Nehemiah is quite the, quite the leader here. He's an amazing leader, remember, the, the ability to fix problems. You know, he, he's, he, he's courageous here. He comes here. He's angry, first of all, and that's a good anger. He's one of the few examples that he could be angry and not sin, so it's a good anger. He was angry at the injustice, angry at the oppression, angry at the greed and the sin. He was really angry. And by the way, before he addresses and fixes the solution, he doesn't just speak out in anger. If you ever just get angry in the moment and speak out in your anger, it's most likely you're going to veer off into sin. But what you see there that me and Nehemiah does is that he gets angry, and then he basically took a deep breath, got self-composed, and then began to operate, not just out of his anger. He brings a great assembly to make it public, so he's fully transparent, and he calls actually the wealthier people out for their sin. He doesn't pull any punches. Then he moves them to give back all that they took so that there is a practical material justice that has been exacted. And then he brings in the priests to make sure that when they promise to do this, that their oaths and vows will be ratified by the spiritual leaders. 
It's amazing the way he is able to do this. He's quite the leader. But when it goes into the problem of unity and greed, he doesn't say, give all your money away. In fact, in verse 9, it says this, So I said, the thing that you're doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations, our enemies? Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? You know, you may not talk like that these days, but I know some of you probably know people who are kind of stingy, who are kind of greedy, not very generous. In your heart, you may be thinking when you see somebody kind of stingy, somebody who's just so like such a penny pincher, you might be thinking to yourself, ought you not to be walking in the fear of God? <laughs> no, you, so, you, you know that friend, right? The friend always calls you up, but he always expects you to pay. <laughs> ought you not to walk in the fear of God? You pay the bill. Someone who's always short, someone who's always asking for something, someone who's always a taker, or somebody who's really prideful because they taunt all their resources and all their accomplishments and all their big, nice houses and all the money that they made, and they want to f- show it off. And you may be thinking to yourself, ought you not to walk in the fear of God? The fear of God. He doesn't say give everything away. I mean, he did do that for justice, but the key is actually a heart transformation. Fear of God, fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and instruction and insight according to the book of Proverbs. Fear of the Lord is not so much words, but really a holistic concept. Fear of God basically means it involves your emotions and your mind. It is a reverence that leads to obedience. Fear of God is that you know God so deeply that you're both in awe of him, but in love with him. You are fearful of the Lord, but you also know that he loves you. You believe his promises, and you love him. You believe his threats, and then you also fear him. Sometimes I wonder, like in the Christian church, that we water down fear of the Lord because it's weird to think that God is actually a little bit scary. But actually, he's pretty scary. It's this simultaneous emotion that you really fear. Fear means fear. You fear him. But at the same time, as contradictory as it sounds, you feel safe with him because of what he's done in his son Jesus. Jerry Bridges describes fear of the Lord in this way. The fear of the Lord is that affectionate reverence by which the child of God bends himself humbly and carefully to the Father's will. One way practically for children, we want to know how to fear God. Fear of the Lord basically means to know God in such a way that you would do anything to keep him smiling after you. That's what fear of the Lord is. Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe captures it well in the way that C.S. Lewis very calmly does. In the Chronicles of Narnia, introducing the character of Alan, who's sort of the Christ figure, Lucy goes up and is about to talk to Mr. Beaver and is going to meet Aslan, wondering if he's a man. And Mr. Beaver said, no, he's not a man. He's a lion. And she got really scared and says, well, if he's a lion, that's a, little bit, that's a little bit scary. Is he safe? Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He's the king, I tell you. He's the king of the wood. That's fear of the Lord, friends. That is what, at the end of the day, Nehemiah moves the people practically 
to give back the vineyards, to give back the children, to give back the grain, to be generous. But he says at the end of the day, ought you not to walk in the fear of God? <laughs> to see these diametrically opposed emotions come together in perfect harmony where the justice and wrath of God, the omnipotent God, exacts perfect punishment for those who are in disbelief and they're punished to hell for eternity. But those who believe in Jesus Christ have an eternal life. And he's saying that these come perfectly together in the heart of God because ought you not to walk in the fear of God? Is he safe? Of course he's not, but he is good. He is good. And you see these come into crystal clarity in the cross of Jesus, where you see God's act of justice harmonized with his act of love, harmonized with his act of grace, harmonized with his act of glory, harmonized with his act of perfection, all in the cross of Jesus. So when we think about how do we grow in the fear of the Lord so that we can keep God smiling after us, come to the foot of the cross, see who you are in your identity, look and meditate and believe and worship and love Jesus Christ, and then you'll know how to walk in the fear of God. That's his solution. The fear of the Lord for us, for you, and for me. And so New Life Press, for visitors, for friends, I just pray that all of us will learn how to fear him well, that we love our covenant community, our people here, not price gouging and trying to one-up each other, but we really love one another and that we can help each other to be gracious and generous with all that we have so that no one out there would ever look at our lives, no one out there would ever look at our lives and think to themselves, that's not right. Ought you not to walk in the fear of God? <laughs> but rather they say, that person understands how to fear the Lord, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray, friends. Let's bow our heads. Oh, Father, we thank you so much that you are so intensely practical, even as we look at these verses about leadership, about community, about generosity, about greed, about unity and maturity. You are so practical and honest about life and the hardness of it. You give us the grace to cry out to you in the moments of anguish and hurt, but you also help us in the cross of Jesus to know you deeply, both in our head but also our hearts. We pray that we learn to fear you, God, because you are worthy of all our praise. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.